Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Performance and Sports Science at the University of Oregon, Jace Delaney. Thanks for tuning in to episode 209 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So Jace is someone that I've spoken to quite a bit over the last couple of months, uh, and probably years actually, uh, after he did a couple of audio abstracts for a couple of his uh, research papers for the website. So Jace is new into the role as Director of Performance and Sports Science at Oregon, so it was great to get him fairly fresh into the role uh, and have a little chat about how that came about, but also have a little dig into some of the articles that Jace has written recently. Most notably was the Invisible Monitoring article that Jace wrote for the Hit Science blog that Martin Bushite and Paul Lawerson have recently uh, recently launched. So in that, invis- in that uh, article, Jace talks about Invisible Monitoring, so we dive uh, deep into what that means and why Jace thinks that's a better alternative than certain things that are going out there when it comes to, um, when it comes to monitoring. So we also discuss game speed, um, tracking fitness and testing fitness, and also neuromuscular and readiness profiling, which also ties into them other couple of topics. So great little chat with um, with Jace, really glad to get him on, and um, I really enjoy reading his stuff, so it was great to bring it to life, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. I sort of, I help athletes by primarily helping other staff help athletes because the, I think the sport scientist role is a very much a, a support staff member. My job is sort of to, to help other staff in their roles, which are inevitably more hands-on with athletes. So just before we do get into this episode of the podcast, I want to say a big thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar, Human Track, and now Force Dex. So the big news coming out of Val Performance is that acquisition of Force Dex and all the staff, the fantastic staff that come along with that acquisition. So a really exciting development in terms of what Val Performance can offer in terms of uh, testing solutions. So may, you've maybe heard of the Nordboard, you've maybe heard of the Groin Bar, um, but if you are interested in a affordable uh, motion capture device make sure you have a little look at human track and also there is a post recently on linkedin from dr daniel cohen who was the uh, one of the founders of force Dex, and explains why they decided to partner with val performance moving forwards so i definitely encourage you to check that out and if you are interested in any of the val performance products head over to valperformance.com or follow them on twitter at val performance so big thanks to them guys for sponsoring this episode today this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by eccentric so eccentric are a sweden-based company and is a developer of the groundbreaking flywheel train tools the k-box and the k-pulley and since its founding in 2011 eccentric products have gone on to be used in major league baseball major league soccer nfl nba a number of uh, other leagues around the world including the epl where leicester city chelsea and arsenal are among the customers so just to give you a brief bit of background on flywheel training 
with the K-Box and the K-Poly. So backed up by multiple academic research studies, it's been shown to increase strength training effectiveness by not relying on gravity, but the inertia of the flywheel. So that improves the efficiency of training programs while lowering the total cost as compared to traditional training methods. So if you'd like to know more about Eccentric's products, the K-Box and the K-Poly, head over to their website, which is eccentric.com, and that's spelled E-X-X-E-N-T-R-I-C.com, or follow them on Twitter or on Instagram at go underscore eccentric. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jace Delaney. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I am delighted to welcome the newly promoted Director of Performance and Sports Science at the University of Oregon, Jace Delaney. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on. So take us through the journey up until the last couple of weeks with a little bit of a change in role, and then we'll talk about that role um, itself. So maybe education, what you've done before, a little bit about the PhD, moving to the US, and then we'll use that jumping off point from there. Yep. Yep. No worries. Um, so I guess my sort of career in sports science is um, quite a bit shorter than a lot of the guys that, you got, that you've had on the podcast. Um, I've only really had the two, more than two roles, but the two places of work, I guess. The, the first one of those being the Newcastle Knights Rugby League Club that plays in the National Rugby League in Australia. And that sort of started as a as an unpaid internship um, out on the back of a work placement sort of thing that I was doing in my undergraduate degree at the University of Newcastle. And that sort of progressed to part-time work as a strength and conditioning coach with some of the junior squads and sort of helping out with the sports science program still with the, with the first grade team. Um, and then I did my honours program in that year which then turned into uh, a full-time position after I finished um, undergraduate degree and my honours degree, sorry. And then um, right at the end of my time there, I sort of headed up a, a pretty small sports science department. Um, and throughout that sort of three or four years leading into that, I did a, um, did a PhD at, at the same time as, as working full-time. So it started out as a, a part-time sort of program and I – was able to get through the PhD at a, a full-time pace, I guess, because I was pretty lucky that my PhD um, really transferred well into my my work and, and vice versa. So I um, did a lot of GPS analytics sort of stuff and the, the skills that I learned in that PhD actually um, benefited me at work. So that was really, um, really handy and I was really lucky to have a – a great supervisor in Dr. Grant Duthie, who's down at ACU in, in Sydney, and uh, one of my colleagues there, Heidi Thornton, who's just um, taken a role at the Gold Coast Suns. She was awesome for me there too. So uh, both her and I sort of learnt off each other a lot um, during that time. After the Knights, I was there for about six years um, and – we decided it was a bit of a time for a change and there was a sports science coordinator position that popped up at the University of Oregon in the States um, and that, that position was with the, the college football team, American football, that is. Um, and I got over here in July last year. So that was yeah, only working with the football team, but recently that 
uh, has evolved and now I head up that department and, and oversee the sports science delivery across a, a whole range of sort of individual and, and team sports. Nice. So how many, how many sports are you overseeing? Oh, I'd have to check the absolute, the, the number actually. It's, so we have um, football, obviously, men's and women's basketball, volleyball, um, track and field. Um, we have soccer, lacrosse, tennis, golf, um, acro and tumbling. I think that's all of them. So, yeah, there's a, there's a, a few. Some of them we have um, both men's and women's. Some are just one or the other. So Yeah, okay. And where did the – where did the um, interest come and the monitoring side of things? Is that something that you fell into? Is that something that you had a previous interest in? Where did that come from? Yeah, well, when I started um, as a as a sports scientist with the, with the Knights, I definitely didn't want to do a, have. I didn't want a career in um, primarily GPS. I was so bored by GPS, to be honest. I, I, <laughs> I didn't want to be that the GPS guy, um, and I think I saw a lot of people that, um, and this was probably after a couple of years of, of working in the industry, but see a lot of people that, and they learned to put a GPS on a player and take it off and download and print a report, and they were calling themselves sports scientists. And I just thought that there's so much more to um, being a sports scientist sports scientists than GPS. So that's why I didn't want to go down that path. And and even now, like I feel that everyone uses GPS as this load monitoring tool and really obsessed with this load monitoring tool. Um, but I don't think that's the way that you get value out of them. So obviously spikes in load are, are a risk and um, that's there's all the, all the research that says that's associated with um, injury risk and, and and that sort of thing, but if if your program's sort of well designed and well thought out, and you've got good people in those roles that are doing the planning, those risks don't really happen anyway, or they shouldn't happen anyway. Um, and particularly in team sports, like if you think about it, once you once you start the season, your whole periodization sort of happens for you anyway. You, you have compulsory days off here and here relative to a game and. Like there's not a lot you can sort of change. So I don't know, I'm, I'm probably a little bit um, sceptical about the value of, of load monitoring in with GPS. So for me, I'd much rather sort of put my eggs in the improved performance basket rather than spending too much time using GPS to tell people to be careful because they might get injured, but realistically they probably won't. I like the way, I like what you've done there. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So why obviously there's there's millions and millions of pounds spent every year on GPS systems, load monitoring systems, whatever you want to call it. People use GPS, that's fine, we'll call it that. Why? If 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 you're thinking that, are there other people thinking that? And do you think there's gonna be a shift towards you like the, the process that you've gone through and the journey that you've gone through? Um to, to come to this point, do you think other people will get to that point and the millions and millions of pounds spent on GPS systems will decline? No, no I don't think that it's about um, using them less or anything like that. I just think that we can use them differently. So um, 
and there's when when you say like use them like I do, like there's people that use GPS a lot better than me, and and uh, we will talk a, a bit about some of this stuff a bit later, but particularly with the um, accelerometer based stuff and and looking at at things like um, stride variability and things like that that are that are really cool and um, quite a, a deep analysis of of something that's actually quite simple. So I think that's the the way that we'll just get more benefit out of what we're already doing. But it's just about looking a bit more closely about that information. And I think that um, that's all that's inevitably going to shift anyway because um, all of our stuff, all of our wearables are going to become more more um, invisible and I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit too, but the, they'll be um, embedded in your, in your clothing and players won't know that they're there. So that's that's the whole benefit that you, you can get a lot more benefit out of the units themselves because it's a constant stream of data that the player doesn't know about but if, if you have the skills to look at them a little bit more deeply, then you get more value out of them. And that, that's why sort of learning RStudio, which I learned um, in my PhD, that's helped me massively because now because there's such a big volume of information you get out of these units, you can manipulate it and you can um, ask questions and answer questions quite quickly. Um, I think I – think my PhD was one example of that, which took me three years to answer one question. But I think now that I have those skills, I, I can turn things around a little bit more quickly. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't think it'll shift away from GPS. I just think I would love for the focus to shift to away from away from injury prevention and more to making players and making athletes better athletes. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the your use of the accelerometer side of things and the, the stride variability. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about, firstly, what that is and what that looks like and what questions you're trying to answer with that? Yeah, for sure. So for me, and this is it, my whole experience was with the GPS side of things more so than the accelerometer stuff because for me the – even though the um, the GPS samples are at a lower rate and um, it's, it was much more um, a much simpler number for me that it's it is representative of just your um, it's it's one number for your whole body like you're not getting anything like differences between your legs or anything like that it's just a very global measure of of what you're doing during a session. And that was great for me working in Australia where we were outside all the time and always got good um, good GPS information. But since coming to the States and, and living and working in Eugene, Oregon, which the summers here are beautiful, they're, they're the best. It doesn't rain for three months, but then it catches up with you and rains for nine months. And we, <laughs> therefore, we spend a, a lot of our time in our indoor facility. Um, during during the winter months, so a lot of our practice is inside, and we we don't have an indoor system, so we do rely on the accelerometers in the in the GPS units to get what information we can out of. 
And there's some people that definitely know a lot more about this than me. So, like I said, this this is something that I've only sort of tried to dive into recently. But um, I know that Amber Rowlett, um, and she's up at the Seattle Sounders now, but she's just recently published some stuff that um, suggests that you can use the player load vectors to um, during st- standardized training training drills to detect changes in, in movement strategies that may be indicative of fatigue. Um, and you can, like you said, you can have a look at some stride variables from, from those same accelerometers. But when we're talking about stride variables and, and trying to measure flight times and contact times and stuff like that, um, and this is off the back of a, a conversation with a, an Australian guy named Alec Butfield who's, done a lot of work in this area, the, the idea of trying to identify um, different components of that contact time, so foot, foot, uh, foot strike and, and heel off, trying to detect that on an accelerometer trace, it gets really messy. So, And if you think about it, that makes sense because the accelerometer is, is located right up the top of your neck and you're trying to detect something on your, uh, like a foot strike that's happening a meter and a half away with all this human flesh in between. Like the forces are going to be dissipated coming up up your body. So it gets quite hard to, to do that accurately. So this guy, Alec, and um, yeah, if you, if you want to get into that to a, um, a greater level than what I can, definitely contact him because. He was great for me. I, I contacted him out of the blue and he was happy to talk through everything that, that he's done. So um, he's actually looking at rather than the different, trying to detect contact time and flight time and stuff like that, he's looking at the variability of the entire waveform of the um, foot strike and he seems to get some really good um, benefit out of that. So, um, yeah, so that's that's definitely one option that we're, we're starting to look at and, I'd be lying if I said I knew everything about it because I definitely don't. But um, I think that's that's one example of a way that we can get some more information out of these units without actually having to do anything else. You can just extract that information from from training and competition. So, have you had a little play around with accelerometers elsewhere on the body, or is that just moving away from the invisible mon- invis- invisible monitoring side of things? Um, no, I haven't myself, but I don't think that moves away from it because that's. I think that's where it will end up. And there are things with the, you know the um, ankle worn accelerometers and stuff like that that does sort of um, get around that issue. But for us, at least over here in, with college football, we've got 115 athletes in our squad, and granted, we don't have 115 GPS units, but Still trying to um, try if we were to put ankle worn accelerometers on at sixty players, that's messy, and uh, I'm I'm losing twenty of them in the first week for sure. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So, just on that invisible invisible monitoring um, side of things that you and that your, that came to my attention in your blog with Martin, which is which is superb. Um, just want to tell us a little bit about what that is as a as a concept, and then we'll dive into that a little bit deeper once we've got the overall picture. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you can we worded termed it invisible monitoring, but it's it's just about getting bang for your buck. So um, when I when I first started in in sports science, I used to get filthy at, at athletes if they didn't take what I was doing seriously. If I was whether that was the wellness questionnaire or um, wearing their heart rate monitor properly or uh, you know a performance test, and they didn't take me seriously, I I just think oh he's a dickhead like and and just brush it off. <laughs> but but really, when you think about it, and you put yourself put yourself in their shoes. I'm only asking them to do those two or three things a day, but but that's just my contact with the athlete. And then if you think about the list of people that are demanding just that little bit of um, compliance from the athlete, so you've got a head coach who is obviously asking a lot of the players and then their position coaches on top of that, followed by, you know, the, the senior player group might be demanding certain things in terms of culture and and buying and that sort of thing. And then so they've got those sort of commitments and then their physios and athletic trainers are, are asking questions and poking and prodding them and the doctors are doing the same thing. And on top of that, they've got media commitments and fan engagements and they've got to keep their missus happy and the kids happy. And for some guys over here, they've – or for all the guys over here, sorry, that they've got study and some guys back in Australia, they've got study commitments as well. So they've got all those sort of time and um, effort commitments, I guess. And at the end of all that, they've still got to play their sport and they've still got to perform. So it sort of led me to think, well, no wonder they don't give a crap because all of those th- things on the that list, they're way more important to them than heart rate monitor and a wellness questionnaire. <laughs> and I think that even though my number one goal is to help athletes get better, the way that I do that is not necessarily something that the players are going to understand initially because I sort of I help athletes by primarily helping other staff help athletes because the, I think the sports scientist role is a very much a, a support staff member and my job is sort of to, to help other staff in their roles, which are inevitably more hands-on with athletes. And that might be, you know, uh, informing running sessions on the field or giving weight, feedback in the weight room or whatever. The athletes aren't really going to understand how what I'm doing helps them directly or indirectly. So as a result, I'm not going to get a lot of credit for it. But if your heart's set on getting recognition from athletes or for anyone, from anyone for that matter, you're probably in the wrong profession, I think. So the whole, this whole idea of invisible monitoring, it, it, it's just about getting, extracting as much important and useful information from athletes without actually forcing anything down their throats and uh, any additional interventions, but still being able to answer some, some coach-driven questions. That, that's the whole sort of idea. Is when you come to this, and this is something that I've I've discussed with a couple of people on here, is coming to that realization that we are the support as sports scientists, the support staff, and you're not, you haven't got the influence and the power of the coach. Is that hard to take, and to be able to realize that we are there to help? It's not about us. Uh, I don't think it was for me because I never, I I never had the. Um, preconception that that was the position and that that was what this was going to be for me like I don't know if, if 
kids come or, or new grads coming out of university and, and think that they're going to go straight in and change the world. Maybe that's an, that's an idea that they might have in their head. But the fact that I sort of started out as a, an unpaid intern doing all the crappy jobs. And that's why I think that whole internship and, in, in, um, integrated PhD role is awesome because you get to learn that from the bottom up and you get to see that, um, that, well, how, how important and useful we can be, but real, you can also be realistic about that as well. So it, it never, it wasn't like a, a, a day that dawned on me and goes, and I thought to myself, oh shit, I'm not actually that important. I sort of knew that from the start. So that definitely helped me. <laughs> So another thing that falls into that category and something that you spoke about on a blog was game speed. Do you just want to give us a bit of an overview again of what that is? And then once we've got that, we'll um, we'll dive into it a little bit deeper. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. So game speed for for me or for, for us, and when I say us, I'm typically talk, talking about that little research group of um, Heidi Grant and myself that sort of um, work through all this and, and my PhD together. Um, for us, game speed's just the ability to perform at a high physical intensity without compromising the, um, the technical and the tactical and the decision-making components of competition. So being able to, um, the, in those situations where you're, you're under the pump and under some physical dress, still being able to perform um technically and tactically so um so yeah that's that's the sort of concept so how so how do you go about measuring that so uh, this came back to um my phd the and the question that was sort of poised by by coaches for us and the the reason that we it was poised to us was our coaches were saying we're too slow we can't keep up with these teams that that um, play that sort of fast and up-tempo sort of style, and this is specifically talking about rugby league. But um, to answer that question, like I said, it took me three years to, and a PhD to answer. But <laughs> You've got I've, two I've, minutes. Yeah, we're, we're a bit better than that now. <laughs> <laughs> the, the answer for us is just like just you need to train the way that we play. And our, what we're doing through the week has to reflect the situations that we're getting in on the weekend. So the first step was to quantify the, the peak periods of competition across a, a range of different durations. So we use one to 10 minutes, but um, depending on the variable that you choose, it, we focus primarily on, on speed as one aspect and acceleration as another. And there's some more recent stuff that's incorporated um, some contacts and collisions, which is also going to be really useful. Um, and I think this that concept of the peak periods or the you know the quantifying the the worst case scenario, it's become pretty popular. Um, and there's a lot of studies that are out there now that have that have done that sort of thing. And I think there's definitely more to it than just saying this is the hardest bit of the game. This is what you have to prepare for and. The way that you you um, you do that is, and we this was another paper in my PhD, but um, we sort of modelled the relationship between intensity and the moving average window because there was an almost um, 
perfectly exponential relationship between intensity and, and time, which gave us a, a little calculation, a little one-liner that you can just build straight into your Excel um, Excel database to to give you based on the, the duration of your training drill, whether it was two minutes, three minutes, eight minutes, whatever, you can get the same um, intensity, the peak intensity that or the relative peak intensity that would um, happen in a game for that value of time. We created a, a spreadsheet on on my own blog website that I um, share with Matt Jones that we can um, – Put out a link for as well, but just to demonstrate how that how that looks, and you can use your own information to build your own calculation. But you chuck that in your database, and and then straight away you you get um you can use it to inform whatever periodization plan you might have within a week, whether you call it tactical periodization or you call it whatever you want. It's just talking about training specificity and and making sure that the stuff that you're doing in in training reflects what you do in a game, and you can still hit those intensities really easily just by running shuttles or running around an oval or whatever, but it's when you're incorporating the same things that are happening in a game, so all the skill stuff, all the technical stuff, but still not compromising on that um, physical component, that's when you sort of tie it all together. So that's going to involve a lot of communication and um, getting involved with actually the planning of, of sessions with coaches? Yes, and ideally that's a good relationship with a coach definitely makes this a lot easier because um, and uh, I guess when you when you sort of want to direct the training drills one way or another and um, having that relationship with a coach to say that you know these are the these, this is what we want to get out of the drill, can you help me? Uh, do that and how do you think that looks within a, in a training drill so if we're looking at you know um, a more I guess we sort of I sort of skipped a bit there but for me having a target first of all before you go to the coach knowing what you want out of the drill before you want before you go to the coach to tell him well this is what we want to get out of it today then having that sort of plan in your head definitely helps things and that's where this this sort of concept can tie into some basic training theory like if you look at that power intensity or um, intensity time relationship that curve sort of you can draw a bit of a comparison between that and a a typical critical power curve that you'll see from all-out exhaustive testing protocols and obviously in team sports, we're not testing a purely physiological capacity. There's this big technical and tactical component that slows down that intensity. Um, the numbers would be much higher if and much more impressive if there wasn't this really annoying game that we had to win or these <laughs> So it's even though that's it's not a purely physiological capacity, the relationship between intensity and duration allows you to be prescriptive with your drill design with somewhat of a physiological target in mind. And and just going back to um, Paul O'Martin's um, hit science methodology that you had on recently, and they've simplified prescription into those six categories and they, they all fall on that intensity time continua- uh, continuum somewhere. So we might be looking at like a, a really tight um, – 
small end-to-end three-on-two drill for um, 30 or 45 seconds and that all-out work might be useful for targeting some high-intensity change of direction and have a big anaerobic and neuromuscular component, whereas you might be trying to target a a different energy system and and open the game up a little bit to be like a six-on-four for a few minutes and and change that up a bit and then and then you start to include the things like contacts and collisions so not only does the specificity of the drill to competition go up but it starts to look at like one of those um, weapons of mass destruction that those guys talk about hmm. and I also I think there's some good crossover with that concept of um, microdosing and, and speed development that that you've had um, Derek Hansen and, and Mike Young give some awesome advice about in particular because they sort of say like you, you, we don't get a lot of time to develop certain capacities during the season because of that technical and tactical requirement. So when you're working with the coaches to design drills, um, you can sort of have that target in mind and and get the players to maintain and maybe even develop specific traits without knowing they're doing speed training or aerobic fitness training or whatever. But the players aren't going to give 100% during those drills unless they're designed in a way that allows that or or even forces that. And you can do that with, like you say, working with the coaches to manipulate field dimensions, player numbers, encouragement. But most of all, it's got to be competitive and athletes don't get to where they are without being competitive so it needs to be a a situation that challenges them um, technically and tactically but also physiologically on the back of that Um, that's the best way I think you get the most out of of those drills so if that just hypothetically if that drill doesn't go to plan and you don't hit the numbers that you want to hit how much topping up are you doing given what you've just said about the guys being competitive and um potentially not giving 100% if they're not actually involved in a, um, a competitive situation like a game? Yeah, well, to be honest, I'm not doing any topping up at the moment. Yep. American football is a completely different sport and, and this has absolutely no relevance, to, or not absolutely no <laughs> relevance, but not, not anything compared to what it, the application it has in rugby and rugby league and soccer and AFL and those sports. But I think that... Yeah, in those drills, you're only as fast as your slowest player. So if you have a, a like a ten people in a drill and two of them are dragging ass and, and aren't keeping up, they're going to bring the quality of the drill down, and that's going to hurt everyone else. So if we you get the feedback after the session and players aren't aren't keeping up in those drills, then you have to pull them out and you have to um, overload them with traditional conditioning so that they can keep up in the drills and don't hurt everyone else. So I don't, I don't think it's a case of after the session you say you've got to top up because you didn't you didn't get there. It's more a case of, all right, why couldn't this player get there? Let's, let's um, condition them individually so they can um, improve themselves and, and keep up with everyone else. And also if it's, it's not an exercise as punishment at all, but – if they understand that, well, if I if I don't compete in this drill, then I'm going to have to go over there and run run interval training. Like, and when they're over there, they're going to look at all their mates in the, in the drill that they're having fun and passing a footy around. They're going to go, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to 
try my guts out next time to make sure I'm, I don't end up in, in this sort of conditioning block over to the side. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jace. So in part two, we discuss uh, neuromuscular profiling and readiness profiling, and also some chat around submax testing and learning R. So really interesting part two coming up. However, just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box Fitness are a company that specialize in performance gym equipment. So they're based in Belfast in Northern Ireland, but also ship and install their equipment all over Europe, all over the world. Um, So if you are looking for little bits and bobs to put you on or in addition to what you've already got, have a little look on their website. Um, But also, if you are looking for a complete overhaul and you're looking at a number of companies who may be able to provide that overhaul, make sure you, uh, again, check the website out, which is blkboxfitness.com. And also have a little look on their Instagram because there's some really good imagery of of some of the projects they've done recently. And they also do uh, an amazing job on making them look uh, really cool. So on Instagram, blkboxfitness and on Twitter at blkboxfitness. So over to part two with Jace. Hope you enjoy. So on to something else that um, that we spoke about previously, which was uh, fitness testing. And I think it'd be pretty good to get this from your kind of old world in rugby league and your new world in US collegiate sport. And just talk, have a little talk about whether fitness testing is actually needed in them in them two scenarios and what, what are your thoughts on that? I think... Uh, in rugby league, definitely there there is a need to to test to to benchmark athletes to um, primarily for the prescription prescription side of things that um, that's just to individualize training. You need to know what they can do and what they can't do. But then once you have that information, like those tests, they're Coaches care about fitness. They, they care if their players are getting fitter or losing fitness, but coaches typically don't care about fitness testing, which you have to completely understand that it's time-consuming, it's it's a big logistical and, and physiological burden, and players hate it. So it's really hard to schedule that sort of thing, which is why you know sub-maximal fitness tests have become so popular, like the, the sub-max yo-yo, for example, which is – Awesome. It's less than ten minutes, and it's low cost, and it's easy. But it's can we just dive ten- into that? Sorry to interrupt, Jace. Can we just dive into that a little bit more? And why people would do the submax, and what you're going to get, what people can get out of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole idea of the the submax yo-yo is that you can um, you can do it in a warm up. It's a maybe a six minute or a four minute um, submax yo-yo where. You'll measure your um, your heart rate during the test, and typically you'll measure your peak heart rate at the at the end of the test, and then your heart rate recovery after the test, and and that's sort of um, been shown to be uh, pretty valid in comparison to the the full um, yo-yo test in terms of a measure of of fitness. But in those tests, that you're standardizing the the physic the physical component the the running, so the speeds and the distances and the accelerations, that's all standardized by the by the beeps. Um, so really you're just measuring the heart rate. It's just a measure of your internal response to that specific protocol. And I just think that 
if we're wearing GPS anyway and you're wearing heart rate anyway, what's the point of standardising the test? Can't you just look at the relationship between external load and internal load anyway because you're measuring it and skip the test altogether? Because I don't know many coaches and S&C coaches that would say, no, if I offered them another 10 minutes to develop a capacity rather than to test a capacity. So there's definitely like that 10 minutes could be way better used to um, develop some speed or some some technical abilities or something like that. So um, that's why we sort of started looking at the relationship between internal and external training load during a session to as a sort of um, proxy measure for a, a fitness test rather than actually having to test um, because the idea of that being uh, it's assuming a, a pretty linear relationship between external load and internal load which does it does fit so if you don't do much running on the field your heart rate's going to be low if you do a lot of running on the field your heart rate's going to be high that makes sense but it's the unexpected outcomes that are interesting so if you don't run much, but your heart rate load is still high. That's probably indicative of a, of a negative training outcome that you you may be fatigued or you or something's going on there that might need a closer look. While as on the other side, if you your heart rate um, load is relatively low for the amount of work that you've done, that's that's a positive outcome. You're, you're getting fitter, and that's definitely something that it's it's. Quite well, using heart rate measures, you have to keep you have to take it with a grain of salt sometimes because heart rate measures are um, sensitive to ambient te- temperature and hydration status and caffeine, and they're notoriously bad for measuring um, heart rate response to collisions and wrestling and stuff that's so evident in contact sports. But if you use it. Um, longitudinally, you still get to see some nice trends that sort of fill the void between um, between fitness tests. The only issue with looking at just a, a ratio between the two, like between internal and external load, is the they're on different scales typically. So if you think of an external load measure as being total distance, for example, of and you might get six thousand meters in a session. And then your heart rate load measure might be, depending on the index that you use, might be in in the hundreds. You can see that they're on a very separate scale. So a one unit change in distance or a one meter change is not going to be the same as a one unit change in your internal load measure. So you just need to scale the numbers appropriately. And and that's what the training efficiency index is. It's So we consulted a, a mathematician actually to, to check that we were doing this right, to be honest. To, we thought we were, but um, we, we got that checked. And just to make sure that that sort of doesn't skew data at either end of the scale, so it's a little bit more reliable. And and now on the back of that, we've, we've sort of shown that the training efficiency index to be related to changes in running performance in, in rugby league, like actual fitness tests. And actually, and also related to the volume of training completed. So your historic training loads. If you're doing more work, you're getting fitter. So your TEI, which would change as a result. So I don't think that that is ever intended to replace fitness testing because of the reasons that I spoke about before. But it's definitely a good way to to sort of fill the gaps between the two. So what external load measure is going into that ratio? 
that's something that um, I think you have to be um, – it, it's on a case-by-case basis in terms of sport. So for us, we, we used a mechanical work measure, which was just a really simple integration of speed and acceleration and and that's something that we calculate ourselves in in R. Um, but obviously, everyone doesn't have the capacity to, to do that. So um, things like metabolic power can be really useful for that because the thing that's really important in in those sports, in team sports like that, it uh, it's acceleration and it's high speed. And you, when you're measuring. A relationship between that and internal load, it, it needs to be a very global measure that sort of captures everything. You still don't get the contacts, you still don't get the jumping and the tackling and the wrestling and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of the running load, that seemed to be the most related to internal load for us. And also, you can't use measures that have a cutoff. You can't use a high speed or a high metabolic power threshold cutoff because if you think about it, if you're running around at under your high speed threshold, if you're running around at four meters per second, you're not accumulating high speed running load, but your heart rate load is still going up. So that you, you sort of that relationship starts to dissipate, and and you lose any any sort of um, ability to detect changes um, between sessions because your internal load is not reflective of the external load anymore, which is why you, you sort of you're best off to, to have a nice global measure. And I think play load is, is one that you could probably use for from an indoor setting, so sports like basketball and and that sort of thing that don't have the capacity to to measure displacement indoors. I think that's a another sort of global load measure that could be useful as well. Nice. You mentioned R a couple of times, and I'm just wanting to ask anyone that – um, is interested in learning it. What's the, any resources that you, that helped you learn R, or was it just getting involved and YouTube? Uh, YouTube was massive, I, yep. um, and like I said, with Grant and Heidi, we we sort of all learned that at the same time. And I'd work out how to do something, and I'd send it to them, and and they'd sort of copy it and teach themselves how to do that, and and that was the way that we learnt and. But now I've since been over here in the States, I stumbled across a website called uh, datacamp.com. So that costs, I think it's like 150 bucks for a, a yearly subscription. But um, I wish I had found that before I started because um, taking three years to learn, I would have taken six months, I think, because that they're people that actually know what they're talking about that walk you through step by step with tutorials and all and all that sort of stuff whereas we were sort of flying blind a little bit um so yeah i definitely recommend checking checking that website out for sure so there's, there's loads of people out there that mention uh at what point do practitioners need to at what point do they think uh, or should they think okay now is probably the time that i need to learn something more advanced is there a uh, like a certain amount of experience like data how many data streams you've got coming in is there any like what point would you flick the switch on on learning r i think the the big thing for us that sort of pushed us this way was or pushed me this way was when excel couldn't keep up anymore when i was spending time um clicking and dragging or 
double clicking a, 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 a cell to drop fill down a, a column and having to sit there and wait for fifteen minutes. <laughs> and yeah, so that that sort of said, well, surely someone's created a better way to do this because I'm spending a lot of time and getting not much out of it. So when when um, when your software can't keep up with you anymore, that's a pretty good sign that you you need to move on to some to bigger and better things. Nice. So one last thing that I wanted to touch on was uh, neuromuscular fatigue and redness profiling and uh, whether it's necessary and useful. Do you just want to give us a bit of a, again, just a bit of an overview of why you might do this and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper based on that? Yep. So, uh, we've, so we've got the TR, which is, like we said, a, a really good sort of longitudinal proxy of fitness that we can track day to day without having to do anything else. But even if our athletes are as fit as a fiddle, if they're neuromuscularly fatigued or impaired, it's going to have implications on game day. And I think particularly over here in the States that um, although aerobic fitness is important for um, recovery between efforts and things like that, so much of our sport, it's a power sport. It's it's one-out effort. You, you go on the sideline, you rest for another five minutes, you go back out, have one all-out effort. So in terms of, of readiness to perform and, and neuromuscular fatigue, it became such a, um, a bigger aspect of, of what I'm, I'm trying to measure now because I think uh, at least in rugby league and, and sports like that, um, it's still obviously important, but a, a lot of the fatigue you have in those sports is, is due to the contact and the, the sort of blunt trauma and, and that sort of thing. So trying to get a, a, an, a good way to measure fatigue and, and, um, and not so much after a game, but leading into a game, I think, because uh, it doesn't take a. It doesn't take Einstein to work out that if you're if you play a four hour game of American football that you're going to be tired the next day. Like that's common sense. <laughs> but, but manipulating what we do during the week to make sure that they're ready to go on the on the day. That's that's really important. And I don't know if you've seen our facility over here, the Marcus Mariota Performance Center, but it's awesome. It's crazy. We've got everything that you could ever wish for. So it's, it's a playground for me. Like we have. Um, force plates and um, well, we have 23 I think uh, if unless I'm missing some but we've got 23 embedded force plates <laughs> and that's great like we could get our athletes in regularly to do a counter move and jump and get some uh, force time variables that are really useful to sort of detect neuromuscular fatigue but obviously that carries a pretty solid logistical and financial burden for, for most people. And even for us, we've got all those force plates, but they're not embedded in the weight room. They're in our performance facility. So we can get guys in to test um, sporadically, but they've got, they have so many meetings. American football players have so many meetings because their game is so technical and um, there's just no time. They've got, because they've got all these meetings with, with football and they've got, school and all these other things that I've talked about before. So trying to find a way to track that without tracking that is is really important, which is why we sort of look down that um, accelerometer path. But 
for me also, and, and we've I've worked with um, JB Moran a, a little bit with this, and he's definitely the um, the guy to talk to with this sort of stuff that knows it back to front. But the force um, force velocity sprint profiling has, has been really useful for me. Um, because in in team sports, whether it's rugby league, American football, whatever sport you're in, being fast is it's great. Like everyone loves speed, but getting to top speed is so much more important. Like acceleration is the, the most important thing. So without going too much into detail of that force velocity profile, and um, JB explains it um, much better than I can, and his accent's way cooler than mine as well. So. Definitely go check this. Out. But the the um, ability to accelerate at high speeds, so therefore producing horizontal force at, at later stages of the acceleration, that's what differentiates your sprint performance. So obviously, tracking that sounds really enticing from like a, a physical profiling standpoint, or you know, there's there's a little bit of um, research there about potential hamstring injury risk, which both uh, leading up to injury and, and following an injury in, in terms of return of play. But also the, the biggest part of that, I think, is, is training design. So um, identifying strengths and, strengths and weaknesses within individuals to, um, yeah, to individualize your, your training program. And to get all that information, all you need to do is get the athletes to sprint and accelerate maximally and take some position time information from either a radar gun, if you have one, we've got one, and that's that's really good for us, or timing gates are good for that, or even if you don't, a low-cost solution, because I'm all about low-cost solution because working in Australia that, in rugby league, it wasn't a um, – we didn't have a lot of money, so low-cost solutions are our only solution. So they have there's an iPhone app that you can take those splits as well to, to extract that force velocity profile. But the difficult thing then is trying to get your whole squad through that testing protocol and, and regularly. So we've got 115 athletes, so sprint testing 115 athletes. It's not something you can do every week. Which is why I really hoped that GPS would be able to sort of assess the whole team at the same time. That you could just say, "All right, everyone, get on the line. We're going to sprint forty meters as fast as you can. It's a race. Make it competitive, and then we can just track um, their force velocity profile using the GPS." But unfortunately, GPS weren't invented for the purpose of this excess, uh, assessing acceleration in athletes as opposed to vehicles so that it sort of technology sort of falls down a little bit when um when your speed's changing rapidly which is obviously the the thing we're trying to measure um but within the limitations of that technology so yeah it's not it doesn't give you a perfectly valid force velocity profile compared to what you'd get from uh radar gun or timing gates it's still can give you some information. So it's still interesting to know how well an athlete can accelerate it at different speeds um, and the relationship between speed and acceleration during training and competition. It's still going to tell you something that you didn't know about the athlete in terms of potentially their, their readiness to perform. So just like the TEI is to, as a fitness test, I think that 
using GPS to track that sort of thing, it's not going to be um, the most perfectly valid thing. But I think validity in, in sport sort of comes down to not not whether you can publish it necessarily, but whether it's going to tell you something useful that you didn't know already. So fill the gaps between the times that you can actually sprint test them. That's the way I see that sort of working for, for us anyway. Superb. What's the, can you remember the name of the app? I can't remember the name of the app, the My, iPhone. My Sprint, I think. My Sprint, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Alongside the other ones that are in that little. Yeah, yeah those guys are done. JB's done an awesome job of yeah. making that sort of available for everyone. And that's the whole whole idea. And that's the sort of um, reason that Maddie and I sort of started writing that blog is that it's awesome if, if, I've got these ways of doing things that works really well for me, but there's probably ways that are much better or there's definitely ways that are much better. So if I go out on a limb and, and put my stuff out there, then at least for one it, it puts it out there so other people can critique it and say, well, what about this and what about this? And hopefully that encourages other people to do the same sort of thing and, and we can all get better together. Happy days. Absolutely. And what's the website called? That leads me on nicely. What's the website um, called? It's called Sports Performance Explained. So Sport Perf X, S-P-O-R-T-P-E-R-F-E-X. Nice. Dot com? Dot com, yeah. Sorry. Perfect. Nice for me. Um, and where, just a little roundup, uh, where can people, apart from the website, where's the best place people to keep up to date with what you've got going on? Uh, definitely. Where are you featuring? Definitely Twitter. Um, I, I yeah, I primarily use Twitter for um, finding out what everyone's doing in in sport and in research. So that's that's the easiest way for me. And you've got the Hit Science blog that yep. was out a couple of weeks ago. Yep. yep. And you've got obviously ResearchGate as well. Yes. Can people download the papers? Or are they requesting? Uh, no, you can download pretty much all of them. If if there's one you can't, just let me know and I'll, I'll upload it. But I think they're all on there, ready to go. Cool. And do you know your Twitter handle? Uh, Jace Delaney. Just, just my first and last name. It's quite, it's quite an easy one to yeah. remember for you, I guess. It was Jace. <laughs> Make sure you get that right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, mate. Well, thank you very much for giving me time again for the second time round um, with the little technical issues. But, um, yeah, really great to chat to you. And, uh, yeah, well, thanks again. Thanks, Rob. No problem. It's been thanks, fun. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Jace for giving up his time, getting up early on two occasions because of technical issues on my side. I've put all the links to the um, blogs that Jace mentioned in the show notes. So if you head over to strengthofscience.com forward slash 209, you'll get all the, um, all the links available on there. So big thanks to Black Box Fitness, Val Performance and Eccentric for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without them guys. So big thanks to them three companies for um, for contributing and sponsoring this episode. So great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Hopefully the guests keep on coming and I will speak to you next week.